right, it is so good to be back with you this morning, beloved. I know some of you introduced yourselves to me this morning. Not necessary. Not necessary. I remembered you. But the time we took away was much needed and restorative to our bodies and souls. But I'm always reminded, always, every time we leave and we come back of the Lord's goodness and bringing us to this church. And like the psalmist, I always say, Lord, you have brought me into a spacious place. And for that, I give thanks. Well, I hope you enjoyed hearing the word of the Lord proclaimed by some different voices from Pastor Val and then from Pastor Timmy Whetstone last week. Uh, last week's text, that first chunk of Ephesians 4, is like my all-time favorite verse in all of Scripture. Second, maybe only to Romans 6, okay? It was a part of our wedding. It was such a wonderful verse. But more than that, I feel like that passage really encompasses what Christian life together means, built upon the foundation of oneness, one Lord, one spirit, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And now this is how ridiculous I am. As I was planning our vacation, I was looking at the lectionary thinking, all right, now I really want to preach that text. We can't be gone that week. And Tommy's like, oh my word, get a grip. That is insane. I, under I get, I guess it's true, but well, I was so dismayed, so dismayed that I was going to be gone for that particular text that I, I got on my email and I, I emailed Timmy Webster and I said, dude, this is my favorite passage. You better do right by her, all right? You better do right by her. And he did. It was such a beautiful word as he called us to participate in that oneness, to join together in unity, not in uniformity, and to love one another without limits as we follow after the example of Christ in this countercultural way of being in the world, right? When we pursue reconciliation, when we forgive, when we're humble instead of proud, when we live into our identity as resurrection people, we practice that resurrection living. Well, today we're going to continue in chapter 4 of Ephesians. If you want to go ahead and turn there, we'll be starting in verse 25. Now, this is a midpoint in chapter 4, midpoint of the whole book, really, uh, a transition in the passage. You know, we've had these big, beautiful theological concepts unveiled to us, like the oneness of God in Christ, and God is tearing down walls, and God has chosen us from the beginning of time to be holy and blameless before him. They're like big, lofty stuff. But what I so appreciate about Paul is that he doesn't leave us floating up in the clouds, holding on tightly to these lofty theological ideas like big balloons, and we're left dangling like, now how do I get to the grocery store from here, right? Because the reality is if it doesn't shape our Monday, it doesn't matter Sunday, right? It has to matter in how we live our lives together. So these next few passages are going to be a bit more practical, kind of explicating perhaps what it means to live out that oneness from last week, how to live into our calling as holy and blameless, and how to live now that God has torn down every dividing wall. So let's read chapter 4, verse 25. So then, putting away falsehood, let us all speak of truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not make room for the devil. Thieves must give up stealing. Rather, let them labor and work honestly with their own hands so as to have something to share with the needy. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up, as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice and be kind to one another, tender hearted, 
forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, before we unpack that like loaded suitcase of things, a word of caution. Now, as helpful as all those practicalities can be, we preachers can sometimes preach them like they're kind of a laundry list of moralisms. Do you know what I mean? We look at these commands from Paul on practical living, and we view them kind of like a checklist of what it means to be a good person, okay? Be honest, don't lie, don't steal, be kind, forgive. If you would just tack on donating blood, voting, and recycling, you have a perfect citizen right here, right? Right, perfect. Now, what Paul is talking about here is not merely a good to-do list to strive after, to be a good person, right? It's not a morality checklist. It's bigger than that. It's about identity and vocation, who we are called to be and what we're supposed to be doing how we are supposed to live out this resurrection life, right? Now, to fully grasp what we kind of are talking about here, we need to remember what Tommy talked about a few weeks ago, if you can remember that that far back, when he talked about the temple. Do you remember how he talked about uh, that dividing line um, of, he says, let me just read the passage to you. Right at the end of chapter two, God's tearing down that dividing wall. It says, so you are no longer strangers and aliens, But you are citizens with the saints, and you are members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone. Now, in Jesus, this whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. And Tommy told us all those stories about how there was a literal dividing wall, and if you crossed in, it was bad news, right? There was this dividing wall that has been brought down in Christ. But Paul is using this language to talk about us in a very specific way. He says, you are being built into the dwelling place of God. Now, that's temple language right there. Remember that wall he talked about? God has torn it down, and he declared that now, among the people of God, is where God has chosen to dwell. The people of God are being built into the temple. Now, how many of you were raised in the church, like hardcore Sunday school all-stars like me? Okay, I see those hands. And then there's some of us here who didn't go to church at all when we were younger, right? Now, for those of you who grew up in the church, you're totally going to totally relate to this. When you hear the phrases, you are the temple of God, you know what I was always taught about those phrases (laughs) as a kid? And as a teen and even as an adult, you are the temple of God was taught in a very specific way. First of all, it was an individual thing. I am the temple of God. Thank you very much. Right. And second of all, it was always taught with specific moralisms attached. Like, um, don't corrupt that temple by smoking, girl. Right. Don't corrupt that temple by drinking. And when I was a teenager, there was a very heavy emphasis on don't corrupt that temple by illicit sex right? Because that is all what youth group is about at that time, right? And then when I got to college and we thought we were really progressive, we were like, don't corrupt that temple by overeating. Add that to the list, right? Of all these, I know, it's so silly. All these ways that we talked about the temple of God. Now, all of those things are totally, totally valid. And they come from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 when Paul is preaching to the people of Corinth. And they are misusing their bodies in ways that dishonor God. And he's reminding them, hey, guys, You are the temple of God, including your body. But here's the thing. 
It's very, those things are all very, very important. Don't go out and do all those crazy things I just listed, okay? But here's the thing. If we reduce our identity as the temple of God to one, individualism, it's just about me, and second, to a no-no list, we miss the point almost entirely, okay? It's like, imagine this, it's like going to the Oregon coast to see the beautiful seaside, right? And you go to your hotel room, you, cl- you close the curtains, and every once in a while you peek out at the window, right? And you look at the ocean and the waves. And then you come home and you say, I have experienced the ocean. We're like, what? No. Not until you have dug your toes in the sand, until you have felt that salty, cold mist blow in your face, and you have seen that water shift from blue to gray to green and back again, have you seen the ocean, right? Now, the point is, being the temple of God is not primarily about you. And it is not even primarily about doing or avoiding certain behavior to keep our noses clean. Now, we're going to come back to some of those things, but we're talking about what's primary for a second. Because we need to take this wide-eyed view of what it means to, as Paul said, be built together into this dwelling place of God, the temple of God. And we need to remember why the temple was such a big, stinking deal anyway. Now, for the people of God, Israel... The temple was the physical place where God dwelt. And in some mysterious way, in the temple, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth intersected. It was like a thin space, a cosmological intersection of heaven and earth. And at that point of that intersection, God's kingdom was breaking into the world. But that wasn't the long-term plan, right? God cannot be contained in a human-constructed building. And so when Jesus died on the cross and he exhaled his spirit, do you remember what happened in the temple? That, that curtain, it tore, and the spirit of God went whoosh out of that place and into the world. And so we see a few chapters after that in the book of Acts, that spirit who has just been released into creation falls down on who? The people of God. And so where the Spirit was once dwelling in this place as this hub of God's activity and presence now has fallen on a people in this radical, radical way. The people of God are now the hub of God's presence and activity in the world. Now, there is no more exclusionism, no more of this dividing wall. Say, hey, Jewish men, go on in. Hey, ladies, Gentiles, and people with deformities, you've got to stay out here. No more of that. He says, instead, God has seen fit to fall upon all who call upon the name of Jesus, men and women, young and old, rich and poor, left and right, and everything in between. And it is in this ragtag, no offense to y'all, ragtag, diverse, totally unexpected group of people, not individuals, that God has chosen to dwell. It is a temple of Now, when we were pastoring in Missouri, rural Missouri, a significant part of our ministry there was reestablishing the church's youth ministry. They didn't really have much going on there. And so there was only a couple teens in the church and they were really, really young. But there was a ton of teens in the community who had no church and no faith really to speak of. And so we began. We had this unfinished basement and we got together, this is hilarious, some railroad ties and some corrugated metal and some stage lights we got on clearance at the Home Depot, and we made this gathering space for teens to come to our basement. And here's the crazy thing, uh, they came, like lots of kids, 
came to our basement, okay? We had well-to-do kids with like the newest kicks and we had the poorest of poor kids wearing shoes three times too big. We had the Sunday School All-Stars who knew the difference between Elijah and Elisha. I dare you to figure that one out, right? And a few of them who had never even opened the Bible, much less read one, and one in particular who declared that Jesus' commandment to turn the other cheek was the stupidest thing she had ever heard, right? That was our youth group. But something happened in that ragtag, ragamuffin mix of teens and some newbie pastors and three dogs, two of which were strays, but they needed a place to belong as well. We were a species all welcome, right? Uh, The spirit, that one making spirit moved among us. These broken, hurting kids found safety and love and inclusion. And those arrogant Sunday school all-stars, by the way, I was totally the captain, so it's all right that I call them that. They were invited to open and create space for people who were different than them. And somehow, we were being built into the temple of God there in a basement in rural Missouri, a place where God dwelt among God's people, a place where the healing, restorative kingdom of God was breaking in to the world right there. And you see that laundry list we read earlier? All the things that we often take at this morality to-do list, those things began to emerge among us. Kindness replaced meanness and sarcasm. Gentleness replaced aggressive teasing. Building up began to replace tearing down. Now, it wasn't perfect. It was work but it was spirit-empowered work. It was the fruit of the Spirit's movement among us and our obedient response. Because always, always, it's God's initiative and our response, right? God inviting and initiating and calling us forth, and we sing, yes, Lord, yes. Now, if you look back at that passage for a second, at Paul's very specific, very practical instruction he gives, he sets up these really significant contrasts, right? He said, instead of lying, tell the truth. Instead of being being angry and using it as an excuse for all kinds of sinful behavior, be angry and, I don't know, don't sin. Instead of stealing, work hard so you can help others in need. Instead of tearing people down with your words, Build them up. Be an encourager. Instead of being mean and bitter and and slanderous, be kind and forgiving and tenderhearted. Now, these are really, really significant contrasts, right? And as much as Paul is prescribing behavior, saying, hey, guys, do this, even more than that, I feel like Paul is describing. He's describing what it looks like to live at this intersection of heaven and earth that thin place where God is breaking in, where we are seeking to live together as the temple of God, that place where the kingdom is bursting into creation. Now this life, marked by honesty and even anger, but rightly expressed, marked by everyone contributing and building each other up and being kind and forgiving, this is God's intention for God's people and for the world. Two things I want to point out here. Every single blessed thing that Paul describes here for living as the temple of God is a community thing. It's a corporate thing. The message is pretty clear, right? 
the way we live, the primary way we live into our identity as followers of Jesus is expressed in how we treat each other as Jesus followers. This is group work here, people. Now, how many of you are like me when in school your teacher said that a project or assignment would be group work, you literally threw your head down on your desk in utter despair? Because you could, we would rather lose the, the use of your arms than work with the nincompoop sitting next to you. Just me? Am I the only horrible human in the world? Because that's exactly what I thought. I much preferred working to myself as a student because I could control the direction, I could control the pace, I could control the content, and I didn't have to listen to other people's annoying and inaccurate opinions, okay? And I didn't have to wait for people to do their part. One time, oh, bless her, one time, this girl, we were in AP American History, we were doing a presentation together. She shows up five minutes before class. Her poster is done, but the glitter glue is still wet and dripping off the poster. Oh, no. Oh, no. If looks could kill. Dead as a doornail. Dead as a doornail. But the thing is, this is, this is the thing. This is my confession to you. I didn't like group work. Why? Because I was arrogant. And I was much more concerned with the result than the process. I cared a whole lot more about efficiency than empathy. And I still don't like group work, sorry. I'm working on it. But here's the thing. Being built into the temple of God is group work. We don't do it alone. How we live together is the number one indicator of the Spirit's movement among us. And when we resist that, and when we try to transform this whole temple of God thing into a just me and Jesus thing, it is arrogant. We are concerned more with the result than the process of efficiency over empathy. And so it's group work. And here's the second thing, and this is super profound, so you want to get out your pencil for this? This whole passage is in the present tense. I know, shocking, it's shocking, right? Nothing fancy and tricky. It's not future tense, it's not conditional, like, wouldn't it be nice? No, no, this is in present tense, which means these words of Paul, we are supposed to apply now, like today. This is not a one day when God's kingdom comes, we will put this into practice, but not now, because it is too hard and people are just too sinful. Nope, sorry, no doing. This is a spirit-empowered obedience now. Now, let me just say aloud what you might be thinking. If this is a now thing and not just a someday when Jesus comes back thing, why is there still so much hurt in the church? Why are people sometimes mean and unforgiving? Why do people sometimes tear down their sisters and brothers instead of building them up? Why are people sometimes still immature and dishonest and unwilling to speak or hear the truth? And it is at this point when people disappointed with the church, disappointed with us, when they are faced, what they see in scripture is this call for the church, the temple of God, and they face the reality on the ground. They throw their hands up in the air and say, forget it. This church is a bunch of hypocrites. I'm out. But here's the thing. Two things, actually, for us to keep in mind. This call to live into this Jesus-shaped life, to live at this intersection of heaven and earth, to embody kingdom living in relationship with one another, it is not just for the person down the row from you. 
I know it is easy to think, man, so-and-so, they are totally tearing people down. Or it is easy to think, oh, so-and-so, she is so unforgiving. She is so mean. But sister, brother, you too. You too. Me too. Before we look out, we need to look in. It stings, but it's true. When we talk about the hurt and the sin and the disobedience in the church, we got to look at us first. But also, when you look at the sin and the imperfect human beings that make up this temple, something that Tommy and I are constantly keeping before us is this. We are in this, this God-serving, church-loving, Jesus-shaped life for the long haul. We are looking at the long game. And when I am focused on the long game, I am less concerned with perfection and I am more concerned about directionality. You, may, you see what I'm saying? I am less concerned with whether or not you have mastered the Christian life by Tuesday and more concerned with the direction that your feet are pointed. Now, some of us are further down the path than others, no doubt about that. Some of us are quicker to forgive and others of us are still learning to forgive as we have been forgiven. Some of us have learned to be tender and kind and uh, building others up while some of us are still really good at tearing people down. <laughs> but which direction are your feet pointed? When you fail, do you turn to Jesus for forgiveness and power to get up and choose a new way? When you drop the ball, do you confess and ask the Spirit to strengthen you to obey the next time? Are you moving closer to Jesus or away. If our feet are pointed in the right direction toward Jesus and his cross, then all of this stuff that we're talking about will begin to describe our life together. As we obey, as we surrender our agendas and our pride, we will be more honest. We will be more kind, more forgiving, and more tender-hearted, more willing to listen and slower to speak. Now, we aren't there yet, but with our feet pointed in the right direction, we persist. We persist in love. We persist in love when we don't agree. We persist in love when we have been hurt and when we have done the hurting. We persist in love when our pride has been wounded. We persist in love when we would rather throw in the towel. And with our persistence and God's faithfulness in some mysterious way, the kingdom of God breaks in. So let's keep up the improv, shall we? Let's put this practicing the resurrection life on the ground, right here and right now. And I know we have to apply Paul's words differently now in the 21st century versus then, but the questions we have to ask are similar. What does it mean to put away falsehood, to speak the truth to our neighbor in a world that rewards dishonest, hateful speech? What does it mean to let no evil come out of your mouths, but only what's useful for building up in a social media world where it's easy to be unkind and self-promoting and cruel? What does it mean to persist in relationships through really, really hard, hurtful things in a culture that treats relationships like paper plates, easy to throw away and replace? What would it look like instead to treat our relationships with one another like fine china? 
worthy of special care and attention, of preserving at all costs. What would it look like to be a people willing to compromise, not our values, but compromise our preferences and our opinions in a world that literally vilifies finding middle ground with the enemy, right? What would it look like to be different than that? What would it look like to be humble and to confess the ways in which we might have hurt one another instead of choosing pride and self-defensiveness? Yeah, you see, it's improv. It is trusting the Spirit to teach us the steps as we go, to guide us in the music of faithfulness in our context here and now. It's a lot, I know. But Paul summarizes it so well in 5.1. He says, be imitators of God. Eugene Peterson in the message says it like this. He says, watch what God does and then you do it. Like children who learn proper behavior from their parents. Mostly what God does is love you. So keep company with him and learn a life of love. Observe how Christ loved us. His love was not cautious, but extravagant. He didn't love in order to get something from us, but to give everything of himself to us. Love like that. Love like that. So, beloved, let us persist in love with one another. With our feet pointed in the right direction toward Jesus, let us be patient with one another as we learn and we grow. Let us love as we have been loved. Let us forgive as we have been forgiven that we might grow up into Jesus, in him who through the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Because in Jesus, we are being built together spiritually into a dwelling place of God. Amen and amen. Beloved, Christ Church, may we trust the Spirit to build us up into the temple, the dwelling place of God. And may we meet God's faithfulness with our persistent obedience. Go in action and go in peace. Amen.